0: Just a few verses today, Matthew 27, which is very providential when it comes to the Lord's Supper. This just fits in so well, because we're going to look at uh, several witnesses to Jesus' deity. And that's interesting, because remember, we're looking at a book written by the Apostle Matthew, being a Jew, writing to Jews, attempting to show that Jesus is King. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ so uh, th- this is a book showing Jesus as king. It, it, the, the predominant purpose of the book is not to show Jesus is God. That, that was John's purpose. But uh, in the midst of this, Matthew certainly showing that he is not only king, he's also God. And he's got several witnesses to prove that here. And so here's my main idea for you today from Matthew 27, verses 51 to 56. So I'll just give you the main idea right up front. It's this, that Jesus is full deity. In other words, in Jesus Christ, you find full deity. He is completely God. Completely God. So in Jesus, we find two natures. We have his God nature and his human nature, both natures in one person. And by the way, it will remain that way for all of eternity. So that's the main idea, that Jesus is deity. So we'll we'll look at uh, two main points and see this. We're going to look at the supernatural witnesses as well as the human witnesses. Both of these witnesses or groups of witnesses all pointing to the fact that Jesus is God. So that first of all, let's look at the supernatural witnesses to Jesus deity. <clears throat> in Matthew 27 we have the the first one mentioned right here in verse 51 and it's it's this curtain that was Ripped in two. Uh, So we'll just read the whole text. Okay, Look at Matthew 27, verse 51. Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection... They went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly this was the Son of God. There were also many women there, looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. In my Bible, that ends the paragraph there in verse 56. The first of the supernatural witnesses to Jesus' deity was found there in verse 51. It is a ripped curtain. Now, this is not just any curtain, and it's not just in any location in any place and so you'll see in your bible it mentions the temple the temple in in this context here in this verse doesn't refer to the whole temple complex the whole temple complex was massive huge and so what we're talking about here is just the the inner sanctuary uh that that holy of holies there in the little diagram there you'll see on the left is the holy of holies and God had designed that, had very clear instructions. You can read that in your Old Testament. Inside that, that little room uh, was, of course, the Ark of the Covenant. And so this was a very special place. It, this is where God's symbolic presence dwelt. Uh, and, and so dividing that little room was a huge, massive veil. It was a woven veil. Uh, some, according to Josephus, by the way, who was a Jewish historian around this time period, he said this veil was, was approximately 20 meters tall or, or 60 feet foot or 60 foot tall. And it separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. Josephus reported that this massive cu- uh, curtain was predominantly blue with uh, very ornate decorating. This was not just any curtain. It was, it was very thick as well. Uh, I can't remember how many different kinds of woven thread they used, but there, there is no way that any human being or any group of human beings could have possibly ripped this curtain in two. And so Matthew says the curtain was ripped from top to bottom. Remember, this thing's like 20 meters tall. It's huge. Uh, you'll see a little, uh, picture, uh, well, it's hard to see, but, Somebody's given a little graphic there, you'll see on the screen, but this thing again, top to bottom. And Matthew's very specific about this. And I think one of the reasons that, that that the Holy Spirit wants you to understand this is because this is something God did. There's this is not just any event. This isn't ripped from the bottom, like in, you know, human beings could have done that, but this is top to bottom. And so this is also filled with great spiritual significance. For example, the veil, you have to understand, it pointed to this enormous gap, this gulf that existed between the holy God and sinful creatures. And so God had designed in the Old Testament that it was only once a year, once a year, and even uh, one day out of the year, and, and only for a very short period of time within that one day of the year, that the high priest, he's the only one, who was allowed to go into that Holy of Holies. And he would go in on the, what was called the Day of Atonement to sprinkle blood on the altar and he did it for the sins of the people. And it was, it was just a very brief period of time. And because just like God's presence in the Holy of Holies, even that special sacrifice itself was only symbolic. It couldn't actually take care of their sin once and for all and so the ritual had to be repeated every year every year every year and every year and so it it, it was what was it doing it was anticipating the lamb of god who would come to take away the sin of the world It, it was anticipating the true sacrifice for sins that of course was dealt with by jesus christ well, specifically, this this ripped veil teaches at least three things. At least three things, and I want to highlight these for you. Number one, the old ta- or the old system of offering sacrifices year by year was over. Praise God, it's over. Imagine, put yourself in their sandals. What would it be like for you to? You're not used to this, but imagine every year, often coming. Coming, bringing a sacrifice that cost you dearly. It had to be an unblemished sacrifice. Coming and shedding the innocent blood of a, of a lamb. And so this old system of, of offering sacrifice year by year was over when, when Jesus died on the cross. And so the priest, by the way, uh, I don't know if you ever thought about this, here, yeah, they, they knew that that Holy of Holies was a very special place. Imagine if you were ministering in the temple there, and, uh, you knew that only the high priest was allowed to go in and sprinkle the blood on the, the, the mercy seat there at the Ark of the Covenant, and, and you're there ministering in the temple, and all of a sudden this temp, this, this veil in the temple's just ripped in half. I, I would imagine if I was in their sandals, I would have thought, oh no, I'm dead i'm dead god's going to kill me that's probably what i would have been thinking and to their astonishment they as far as i know they all lived and and as far as i know the priest probably went back and sewed that veil back together and and kind of just went on their normal way of their traditional religious practices but in the sight of god that old age had ended and, and a new age had begun as this little graph on on the screen might might be helpful Hard to see, but um, the, we, we hope you understand one thing that God was doing amazing stuff through Jesus Christ, so that God rips that veil in half from top to bottom, and it was showing that the the old system of of the offerings those sacrifices was done because Jesus completed it. it It showed a lot of other things as well number one the the new age uh, is just embracing that there's unity in Christ. There's no longer this division of Gentiles and Jews in, in Christ's church within His body. We're all made one. And so it's no longer Jews and Gentiles. It's no longer slave the slave and the and the free man, or you know the white man and the black man. It's it's there. There's there's no you know ethnicity division or social standing divisions or. Um, you know, none of that sort of stuff anymore. In fact, the Bible says this idea quite well in Ephesians 2, verse 14. Look at this. For Jesus is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with his commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. So the Old Testament sacrifices, that old system, the old covenant, is done away with in Christ. Number two, what is this ripped veil teaching us? Well, Jesus' offering of himself was the perfect and final sacrifice, So nothing more needs to be done, or can be done, to reconcile sinful men and women to God. That's beautiful. (laughs) Absolutely beautiful. My friends, Jesus' sacrifice, I hope you understand this, was a real sacrifice for sin. A real sacrifice. It wasn't a symbol. It wasn't just symbolic. It, It wasn't just pointing forward to something else like the Old Testament sacrifices did. And so in that Old Testament system, they would come and continually make sacrifices which could never, never atone for their sin, never reconcile themselves to God. And so the previous sacrifices pointed forward to the the atonement that Jesus Christ made. And so Jesus, what He did is He put away real sin by His real death. He had a real death. I hope you understand that. He is human, after all. He really did die. Uh, And so to suggest that anything more is then necessary for our salvation is actually denying one of the five solas of the Reformation. During the Reformation, they have these solas, or what we would call onlys. In Latin, it means only. And so it's really denying Christ alone. Uh, which was a slogan which the reformers, uh, they, they really expressed that to, to show the completeness, the sufficiency of Christ's work. I hope you understand this, that there was this, this understanding in Catholicism that Christ wasn't sufficient. And so that's why there was all this other stuff you had to do. You had to do penance, you had to do baptism, you had to do good works, and, and all these other stuff, and, and you had to go to Mass all the time, and and so forth, right? Because Christ wasn't sufficient. You you needed all these other sacrifices added onto Christ. And so that's why the doctrine of Christ alone was, again, clearly taught from the Scriptures. And so to add anything to Christ's work, then, is doing what Galatians 1 calls you are teaching or preaching another gospel, which Galatians 1 says is there is another gospel. There's only one. And so the Bible actually condemns that practice. Well, the book of Hebrews is particularly concerned with this theme. Of course, Hebrews is showing that Jesus is supreme and superior in every way, including over those Old Testament sacrifices and and the sacrificial system. So let's look at a few verses here from Hebrews 9, verse 25. Christ did not enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place, every year with blood that is not his own. Then Christ would have to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now he has appeared once for all, at the end of the ages, to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as man is destined to die once, and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people, and He will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for Him. That is great news. That is good news. So, this this isn't the only place you can find this teaching in the Bible. Uh, the Apostle Paul mentions in 1 Timothy chapter 2 that there is one God, And one mediator between God and man, and it is the man, Christ Jesus. And it says that he gave himself as a ransom. He paid the price for your sin. And so as a result today, we insist that there is no Savior but Jesus Christ and that we have to believe on him. We must commit ourselves to him if we are to be saved. It's Christ alone. It's not good works plus Christ. It's not Christ plus whatever else you, you know, someone might be thinking it's Christ alone. So the veil shows us this. The ripped veil is teaching that Jesus offering himself was the perfect and final sacrifice. Number three. What else does the veil teach us? The, the ripped veil. It teaches because of Christ's work, it is now possible for those who believe on him to approach God directly. Praise God. Remember, what was the old system like? One person, the high priest, could go in one time out of the year into that holy of holies. And so now the Bible says we all become priests of God. I hope you believe in the priesthood of the believer. And so because Jesus is now your mediator, you can pray to God the Father through Him in Jesus' name you get to talk to God the Father any time out of the year, any place. It's not just one time out of the year. It's every day, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, every day of the year. <laughs> unbelievable. And so the people of God, they, they of course couldn't do that, at least not before Christ's death. And so they needed to approach God indirectly. And they had to ask a priest to intercede for them. But Hebrews makes it quite clear that we now have a great high priest, Jesus Christ. And he has now opened the way for every believer to come to him at any point, any time. So look what the author of Hebrews says about this in Hebrews 10. The powerful verses. Hebrews 10 says this, Therefore, brothers, and we could say sisters, includes you too, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is, His body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. Did you notice the connection there? <laughs> the author of Hebrews... Holy Spirit is clearly showing us a connection between that veil, that curtain, and Jesus. So as Jesus is ripped, if you will, figuratively, so the curtain was ripped. Well, that ripped curtain certainly is giving us a supernatural witness to the deity of Jesus Christ, showing that Jesus is clearly God. Uh, Only God could end what he had started, right? He was the one who had instituted that old covenant, that sacrificial system. And so he made the new way. And so we see a second supernatural witness to Jesus' deity in verse 52 is these raised saints. Raised saints. Look at verse 52, because it says that the tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Wow. Wow. Does that not show God's power? I mean, God is the one who has power over death. He's the one who has the power over sin. Of course, sin, the wages of sin is death. And so we see Jesus' power conquering sin and death. And this is an amazing event. And some might even wonder, well, it's just one little verse. Why is this even mentioned? It's just another witness to the deity of Jesus Christ and His power The resurrection of these believers also, by the way, is a foretaste. It is a pledge of something yet to come. It's a foretaste and a pledge to the final resurrection of, by the way, you and I who are believers, all believers who have believed on Jesus Christ, can look forward to a final resurrection. And so just as Christ was raised from the dead, so also the Bible says God will also raise from the dead, those who have believed in Jesus Christ. My friends, Jesus knew this truth. Jesus taught this truth. For example, in John 11. In John 11, by the way, the context is when Jesus' friend Lazarus died. Jesus had purposely, providentially waited a few days till, till it was clear that Lazarus is dead. He's in the tomb. By this time, he's, he's stinking. The body's decaying. Jesus comes along and raises his friend Lazarus from the grave. And, and in that context, Jesus says this. verse uh, It's on the screen here, verse 25. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Now, of course, when he says will never die, he's, he's not referring to a physical death there. Because there's been many believers who have physically died. But Jesus is referring to a spiritual life. And so this teaching is indicating here that true life is spiritual life. True life is not your physical life. And so those who believe in Jesus have this spiritual life. His words also taught a final resurrection. And so that's why Jesus can say it's, it's, it's absolutely correct here for Jesus to say that Christians will never die. There is something called eternal life. All this is possible, of course, because Christ experienced death for you. He absorbed God the Father's wrath. He bore your penalty for you. And so by raising some of these believers to life at the time of Jesus' death, your God is indicating that this is the destiny of all whose faith is in Jesus Christ as Savior. We love 1 Corinthians 15, the great chapter on the resurrection. Here's what uh, the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. Christ has been raised from the dead. And, and notice what Paul calls Christ here. He calls them the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. And by the way, falling asleep there, you understand, that's figurative language showing they've died in Christ. They, they physically died, but we know that all believers ultimately have spiritual life, eternal life. It's just a temporary thing, like going to sleep. And so Paul calls them the first fruits. He's the most important of all who have died. The most important. That's why he's called the first fruits. And so Paul goes on to say, For as by a man came death, By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. So as Christ was raised from the dead, the Bible says we too will also be raised. Those of us at least who have put our faith in Christ alone. This doesn't mean that the resurrection of those who came out of the tombs at the time of Christ's death uh, was their final resurrection. You understand that, I hope. It wasn't their final resurrection. Probably, in fact, all those that God had raised at that time went on to die a second time. That's the assumption, anyway. Uh, But while theirs was not the final resurrection, it was a resurrection, nevertheless... And it pointed to the day when all who are Christ will be raised by Him. So it's, 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 that's why we're calling it a foretaste. It's a pledge of the final resurrection. And 1 Corinthians goes on to say this, verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable. We shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your uh, oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. My friends, I hope you believe that. It makes all the difference in the world when you do. And so the resurrection of many of the saints, and by the way, it doesn't say all of them, but it does say many of them. Uh, many of the saints who had at least had been raised from their graves. This was a pledge of the final resurrection, and it's, it's a wonderful encouragement to all the saints of God, past and present, because we wait for Jesus Christ as well. And When we wait for Him, and the Bible says when we see Him, we'll be made like Him when we see Him. So there was two supernatural witnesses to the deity of Jesus Christ, clearly showing Jesus is God. We have a ripped curtain, and we have raved, raised saints. So now let's move on to point number two. We'll look at the human witnesses to Jesus' deity. And again, we have two different groups mentioned in our text here. Let's have, let's have a look at these two groups. We have some soldiers and we have some women. First of all, let's look at the Roman soldiers. And by the way, let me just highlight their responses. We see the Roman soldiers respond with saving faith. In verse 54, it wasn't just the centurion, because look at your text, look carefully, observe it carefully, because it says, verse 54, when the centurion and those who were with him, the other soldiers who were with the centurion, what are they doing, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake, and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly this was the Son of God. Let me just remind you who these Roman soldiers are. Lest we forget, these were the guys who participated in Jesus' scourging. That Roman centurion may have been the one who was holding that cat of nine tails that turned Jesus back into mincemeat. They were the ones who probably pushed the crown of thorns onto Jesus' head. They were the ones who probably beat him and and ripped out his beard and punched him in the face and mocked him and put that, that fake scepter into his, into his hand and mocked him as king of the Jews. It was on Golgotha that they nailed him to a cross. They're the ones who probably pushed that cross up and dropped him into the hole, at least dropped the cross into the hole. They're probably the ones who were indifferently gambling for what few earthly possessions Jesus had. Remember, the Bible says they gambled for his clothes. They divided them amongst themselves. These were the guys who were jeering at him while he hung there on the cross. It was, after all, it was their duty, prescribed by Pilate, to stand there and to, to make sure that this guy died. It was their duty to keep other people from coming and rescuing him. So there are several things... That actually changed their attitude these These were rough, hardened Roman soldiers. Uh, by the way, a centurion, as far as I understand, was a a Roman soldier who was a leader of of approximately a hundred soldiers a century you think of century being a hundred, so as far as we know we he's he's a leader amongst the Roman soldiers. Hardened guys probably had murdered people or or, or executed people before and so here they are they're standing at the foot of jesus cross seeing what's going on involved in all of this debauchery and so they they something changes their attitude what was it that changed their attitude particularly toward jesus that would cause them to say this truly was the son of god well, they saw a number of things. Number one, they saw, we saw last week, they saw the skies were darkened for three hours. And this was right in the middle of the day, during the brightest part of the day, from, from 12 noon to three o'clock. And, and they're standing in the dark. You know, man, this is creepy. This is weird. What else did they see? They also saw the earthquake and, and the results of the earthquake. Um, and so the Bible says these soldiers became very frightened. So they, they see this this sudden darkness, which probably unnerved them. Uh, the second thing they notice is this earthquake with all the, the violent splitting of rocks. I mean, imagine big, powerful, strong rocks just crumbling and splitting in two, and they're thinking, whoa, man, am I next? And so that was a terrifying experience for them. And we know it's terrifying because uh the greek word used in the text uh we get we're getting the english word awe but the greek word there is we get an english word called phobia phobos um which of course a phobia is just a a fear a terror of something and and so it's just sheer terror it's the absolute panic that causes someone to start sweating it it causes someone's heart rate to you know, to really go up, and and someone to really go into extreme anxiety. However, the context and the circumstances of the passage clearly indicate that the, the centurion, this Roman soldier, as well as the other Roman soldiers, were frightened of far more than just the darkness. They're frightened far more than just an earthquake. It, it seems like... They're sensing that all this natural phenomena that's going on around them is actually created by something bigger and more powerful than them. And we're not talking about Mother Nature either. Uh, They they seem to understand there was a, a supernatural origin behind the darkness and the earthquake. And so their primary fear was not of the events themselves, but actually the divine power behind the darkness and the earthquake. So their emotional fright... Here, uh, turns to a spiritual, reverential awe of God. And so they testify, by the way, to that fact. And, and we know it's not uh, the, 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 a certain kind of fear, but, a, but it was a fear of the Lord. And we know that because they didn't run away. They stayed there, right? That, that whole time, while it's dark and the earthquake's taking place, they're they're there. They didn't run away. They they didn't run away. They didn't go to find a place of safety, but instead, what did they do? They made an amazing statement from their lips. They said, truly, this was the Son of God. Well, some like to criticize their lack of, of understanding or their, maybe their low level of theological, uh, knowledge. Well, I'm not gonna do that. yeah, you might say their their knowledge of theology was limited. Well, guess what? So was ours. So was mine when I was saved at a young age, okay? Uh, and I'm still growing in my understanding of the Bible and God. But the faith of these soldiers is something of great significance. Clearly, God changed their hearts. Uh, for example, one, one, le- one of the great spiritual things we, lessons we can learn from this is that grace extends to every sinner. My friend, are you a sinner? The answer is yes, you are. The Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so this is good news. Since we're all sinners, we need God's grace. and So this is a glorious truth. The grace extends to every sinner, including those who killed Jesus Christ. And so during the process of his crucifixion, we see Jesus Christ ends up no longer being the object of their derision and their mocking, but Jesus Christ becomes the object of their saving faith. And they put their faith in Christ alone. It's also wonderful truth to see here that the Jesus' prayer was answered. We saw this, uh, I think it was last week, we talked about one of Jesus' prayers when He was on the cross. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So Jesus' prayer was answered in several ways. Remember, the one of the thieves on the cross next to Jesus was saved. Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. So Jesus' prayer was answered in that way. Jesus' prayer was answered as these Roman soldiers put their faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus, by the way, had said in John chapter 12, listen closely, He says, I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to Myself. And so, Jesus was lifted up from the earth when He was on the cross. And so those very men who had literally lifted Jesus up off the earth and hung Him on a cross were drawn to Him in repentance and faith. So the first of the human witnesses were the Roman soldiers, clearly pointing to Jesus' deity. Only God can do this kind of a miracle. Do you, my friends, do you realize that saving faith is a miracle? Of God? In fact, it's a, it's a far greater miracle than the darkness and the earthquake. Yes, those are miracles too, but when God converts someone, someone who is dead in their trespasses and sins, and makes them alive in Christ, you don't get a greater miracle than that. And that's exactly what God did for them, clearly pointing to Jesus' deity. Let's look at the second group of witnesses, which are the Jewish women. We find in verse 56, uh, 55 and 56, and they have a wonderful response to King Jesus. They were loyal to King Jesus. Look at verse 55. It, said, it says, um, There were also many women there, looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to Him. And verse 56 mentions three of them. There are probably more, because it does say there's many of them. So... I don't know, ten, twelve, who knows? I don't know exactly how many were there. Uh, from John's account, by the way, we know that some of the women had had been actually at the foot of the cross, because remember, in John's account, Jesus he talks to John and he says that uh, um, he had a little conversation with his earthly mother and John to make sure that his earthly mother was looked after. So John makes it clear that they were actually right there at the foot of the cross. So you might ask, well, why is Matthew now saying that they're off at a distance? Well, again, put yourself in their sandals. If you saw the Savior, who is not only your Savior, but your dear friend, your companion, your, your teacher, be, being crucified, suffering in that way, would, it would be very uncomfortable. It, it wouldn't be nice to be right there at the foot of the cross seeing all this going on. So I can imagine they, they kind of moved off, you know, so so they're off in, off in the distance. So they're kind of understanding what's going on. They can sort of observe, but it's it's not so close and personal. P- perhaps maybe they couldn't actually bear to see the suffering of their Lord so closely. I don't think they were afraid of the Roman soldiers. After all, they were already at the foot of the cross. Uh, I don't think they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. I don't think they had concern for their own safety. Uh, Unlike Jesus' disciples, by the way, who had fled, other than John. Of course, John was there. But all the others, they had fled. These ladies were there. They were loyal to King Jesus. They weren't ashamed of being identified with Jesus. So as far as we know, they withdrew because they were devastated by the suffering of Jesus. This was the one whom they had loved. And by the way, did you notice in verse 55? This is the one that they had followed from Galilee. These women knew Jesus well. They had traveled with him. It wasn't just the twelve apostles. These women had been there. They had ministered to their, to Jesus' needs and the other disciples. The word minister is a really cool word. Uh, They were deaconesses, if you will. They were deaconesses. Deacons are ones who serve. These are female deaconesses serving the the physical needs of the group. So I would imagine these were the ones who served the meals, cooked the meals, did whatever else they could, uh, looking after spiritual needs as well, not just physical. These were great servers. These were lovers of Jesus Christ, and so their grief would have been deep. Their hopes may have seemed shattered but their courage was undaunted. And so the Holy Spirit identifies three of them here in verse 56. We've seen their names, and we'll see these names again in the resurrection. The Holy Spirit identifies just a few of these godly women by name. Notice the first one in verse 56 is Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene. Unlike Dan Brown in his book, The Da Vinci Code, Mary Magdalene is not the wife of... Of Jesus. She is not, okay? So uh, I hope you understand that is certainly a far-fetched work of fiction. In fact, it's filled with a lot of errors. So do not take it as gospel truth. Uh, Mary Magdalene had no husband. She was signal, uh, single. Sorry. Uh, you say, well, what do we know about this woman? Well, the Bible doesn't say a whole lot. In Luke chapter 8, it does say that she was... Uh, Uh, One whom Jesus had cast out demons. She had been demon-possessed, which clearly makes her an unbeliever. And so Jesus cast out the demons, Jesus saves her. And and from that point in her life, she was changed. She repents of her sin, puts her faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, By the way, Magdalene is not part of her family name, okay, so it's not... It's not Mary being her first name and Magdalene being her last name. Now, that's that's not what it means. It just means that she was from the town of Magdala. I don't know how you say that, but she's from Magdala, which was on the, the western shores of the Sea of Galilee. So she's probably identified in that way because she's unmarried and couldn't be identified with her husband, which was typical of that culture. Now I'll, I'll make I'll make a statement about that in a moment, but just just take note of that. She's single, single as far as we know. Okay. Now look at the second woman. The second woman here is Mary, and notice all it says in the text is she is Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. There's a lot of Marys. Okay. So how do we identify which Mary this is? Well, this is not Jesus' earthly mother. This is Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. And by the way, this James here is James who was one of the apostles, but it's it's not um, maybe it's not the one James you're thinking of. This is the the James that was commonly referred to as James the less or James the son of Althias, uh which would obviously distinguish him from the other apostle James, who was uh, a part of that inner circle. Remember the inner circle of three? You had Peter, James, and John. Uh, So this is not the mother of that James. This is a different mother of James, okay? So she is, uh, in John chapter 19, identified as Mary, the wife of Clopas, or uh, other variants uh, might say um, Alpheus. So she is married, and she obviously has children. One of them is uh, one of the apostles. So we have a single woman. Now we have a married woman with children. Now, look at the third one. The third one is identified as Salome, according to Mark chapter 15. And uh, she is referred to by Matthew, though. All all Matthew says is she is the mother of the sons of Zebedee. In other words, she is Zebedee's wife. Zebedee is her husband. And obviously, they also have children. So these, the, the sons of Zebedee, of course, were James and John. They were the fishermen who, who uh, the, were often called the sons of thunder who ended up becoming, with Peter, part of that inner circle. So this is their mother, the mother of James and John, who is the wife of Zebedee. Does that make sense? So we've got a single woman. We, we've got uh, this, this, Mary, this other Mary who is uh, the mother of James and Joseph. And now we've got the Salome, uh, who is the mother of the sons of Zebedee. So what's the point? Well, number one, as we'll see in the resurrection account, obviously God loves women. That's crucial, because in in this culture, women had basically become chattel. They had become possessions. They They were not at the status of our modern culture. I hope you understand that. And so this is very special that Jesus loves them. The Holy Spirit includes them in the text of Scripture. So why are these women mentioned? Well, the first of the three, Matthew mentions here, is not married. The second's identified by her children. And then the third one, Matthew says, is identified by her husband. And here's the point I want to make. Uh, the implication, I hope, is clear. But in, here's, I think, the implication is that God bestows dignity and honor upon all groups of women. Okay? One of the things that shows us is that is, number one, singleness is not a disease... Uh, as some might think. uh, Being without children is not a disease. Being married is not a disease. Okay? We we see all the groups here. Okay? So God has a marvelous and blessed role for all kinds of women, and he he gifts them with singleness. God gifts women who are also faithful mothers as well as faithful wives. Do you see that? It's a beautiful picture of God's grace bestowed on undeserving sinners. So, my friends, let me ask you this as we close. Are you a witness to the deity of Jesus Christ? That's, that's just my simple question from our text today. Are you a witness to the deity of Jesus Christ? And if you are, what kind of a witness are you? How are you responding to King Jesus now, in the, the witnesses for Jesus' deity, we had two of them, remember? Uh, I hope that if you're a believer, then you've already responded as the Roman soldiers. But my friend, if you've never put your faith in Jesus alone, the Roman soldiers' response to Jesus is appropriate. How did they respond? They responded with saving faith. They recognized that they were sinners, they repented of their sin, and they, they put their trust in Jesus. That is the only appropriate response to King Jesus. And so this is something that we must continually do, by the way, and I'm not saying continually get saved, but continually recognize that Jesus is your Savior. Believe that. He is the one who's paid for your sin. But those of us who are believers, we also must respond like these Jewish women. We must respond with loyalty. You understand what loyalty is? Loyalty is when you are fully devoted to this one person forever, through thick or thin. Right? It, it's those of us who who have spouses, those of us who were who were married or are married, at some point. It, it's it, it's kind of like those vows that you made to that one person. At least I hope you made some vows that were similar to the vows I made. When I was married, I vowed that this this woman who was going to marry would be my wife for as long as I should live, through sickness and in health, through through being poor or rich, through good times, bad times. it, It didn't matter. I would be faithful to her, devoted and faithful to this one woman. There wouldn't be multiple women. There wouldn't even be pictures of other women. But I would be devoted to her, loyal to her. There would be no other woman who would come between her and me. The only one higher than my spouse would be God, of course. He is the one we must love with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength. And so loyalty, you understand, is is not conditional. It's not fluctuating. It's, It's something where you say, I will be this way and do this, no matter what, come what may. Have you made that decision? Are you continually making that decision? Come what may. Right? Jesus is King. The King is coming again. The King is here, living inside all believers, as the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians 6 says, He, the Holy Spirit comes and resides within us. We, believers, plural, are Cor- or corporately speaking, are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So the good news is, my friend, you can respond in loyalty. You should be loyal to King Jesus. Are you? Let me encourage you. I know, like me, my loyalty wanes, wavers. is not where it always should be. The good news is, my friend, you can come to this God who loves you. Just as the prodigal's father was waiting, longing for his son to return, the good news is God is just and faithful and will forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So when we waver, when we fall, the just man falls, but the Bible says he gets back up. He falls seven times. He keeps falling, but he keeps getting back up. That's the just man. (coughs) You're not going to be perfect in this life. But my friends, don't just lay down and give up. Don't lay down and give up. Go on. Stand up. Be loyal. Stand for King Jesus, come what may. By God's grace, would you do that?